of the examples given in verses 1 through 18, the giving, the praying, and the fasting, was that it was done with wrong motivation. And that's because their hearts were not right. They were not just with God. And it showed up in the way that they worshipped. Now, we've taken time, this is the second message on the subject, to break this down a little bit and to expand upon it. And this particular subject of fasting is a little bit more troubling to us than the other two because we really don't know very much about it, and there's such little talked about it in the Word of God. Now, giving we understand and praying we understand because those themes are emphasized over and over again in Scripture. But this thing about fasting, we really don't get very well because that's simply not a part of our religious culture. So we're going to review for just a few minutes, and then we're going to talk about this question uh, today, about what does the Bible teach about fasting for us as Christians today? What does it have to say? But let's review for just a moment and see where they got the idea of fasting. So we're looking now at the Old Testament practice of fasting. And the Jews obviously got this from the Old Testament. Uh, They didn't pull this thing out of thin air. And indeed, they were so concerned that they would do everything that the Old Testament said that, that they wouldn't leave anything out. Now, they might have misinterpreted, and they did, and they might have twisted things that they read, and they did. But somewhere in their practice, they would have to include fasting because it was taught in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament did command fasting, but there's only one specific time in the Old Testament where they were told to do this. And it was connected with the most important religious observance that the Jews had. It was connected with the Day of Atonement. And that was a day when all of Israel was called upon to admit, to confess, and to repent of their sins. It was a national day of repentance and sacrifice for sin. And so to memorialize that and to show just how serious that it was, God said, you must fast. And so fasting recognized the need for them to repent of their sins. And then also the Day of Atonement was the Day of Reconciliation. Sin separates man from God, and it puts him at enmity with God. And so Israel was taught that that enmity must be removed. And the means of removal was sacrifice. And so they sacrificed on the Day of Atonement, and all of those sacrifices pointed towards the time when Christ the Messiah would come, and he would deliver them from sin forever. And so the only time that we find fasting commanded in the Old Testament is in a corporate setting. And that's for the entire nation, the whole nation. And besides that, we don't have anywhere in the Old Testament where anyone, any individual, or even the nation was commanded to fast. But Israel had expanded upon it, and it had become more common. Fasting took place at other times. When people were sad, they were fast. Uh, when they would fast, when times of repentance was needed, and they recognized that they'd sinned against God, they would fast then. Uh, There's an example in the book of Jonah where Jonah preached in Nineveh and those people repented of their sins and they fasted and then God saved the city from destruction. And then fasting was also associated with mourning. Whenever bad things would happen, they would fast and they would sit in clothes of mourning and they would pour ashes on their head and they would fast just to show how deeply that they had been affected by some evil that had come. And so that's the practice in the Old Testament, and it had been expanded beyond the original command. And in truth, God didn't rebuke them for that. 
I mean, because he had only given one day uh, commanded for fasting, if they would do it seriously, and if they were uh, truly devoted to God, and they did want to repent of their sins, then, of course, it was all right for them to fast and to accompany it, accompany it with a fast. But things changed over the years. And so we come to the New Testament times, and here we find the New Testament perversions of fasting. And this is really what Jesus is trying to address in this particular scripture. Now, as I said, it's not so much a thing here of telling them they are to fast or they're not to fast, but this was about how they had twisted it and how they'd made a show of their fasting in order to prove to people how pious and holy that they were. And so fasting at that time had become a religious ritual. It was no longer connected with genuine sorrow. There was no repentance that was involved in it. It was simply done that people might gain recognition, and they would fool others into thinking that they were really close to God. And so the Israelites would begin to fast frequently. Now, their theological perversions and wrong answer to the question of how is a man just with God led them into frequent acts of fasting because if you can be made righteous by your works, then, of course, the more good works that you do, the more righteous that you become. And so they equated fasting with that. If you fast more, then you must be a more righteous person. So it was done to prove their righteousness. And these Pharisees were the kind of people, they wanted to get ahead of the next guy and be more righteous than he was. And so in a racehorse type of fashion, they were trying to get this thing and do this thing and just to outdo others in acts of piety. Now, I mentioned in the last message about this that if they had stuck to the Old Testament command that fasting was to be done in times of repentance, then fasting would not have proved how holy that they were. It would have proved how sinful that they were because they have to keep repenting and they keep have to fast. Uh, So they taught the people wrongly for so long about this that nobody caught the contradiction. And so they went on fasting in order to show people just how holy that they were. And so we come to the New Testament and we find that fasting is no longer reserved for one time per year. But we go over to Luke chapter 18 and we see that proud Pharisee who's praying there. And what did he say? He said, I fast twice every week. And so somehow it had become a a sign or a standard that you needed to fast at least 104 times in a year. But that wasn't all. There was also the false fasting. And that is the real hypocritical part that Jesus speaks about here. In verse number 16, Jesus said that the hypocrites would disfigure their faces. They would smear ashes on their faces so they would appear to fast. And they didn't want anybody to miss that fact. They wanted to show everybody that they're in a period of fasting. And they weren't content to do it privately between them and God. And if their hearts had been right, that's what they would have done. Nobody needed to see it. It didn't have to be demonstrated. You don't have to prove to anybody how holy that you are. God knows what's in your heart. And so their intentions here were not God's honor and God's glory. All of that was immaterial to them. It was of no consequence because what they had done was fabricated their own religion. It became a religion based upon personal effort, one that depended upon self-righteousness rather than upon God. And that is the inevitable outcome of getting the answer to the question wrong, how shall a man be just with God? And so that's what the Old Testament said about fasting, and that's the way that the Pharisees had perverted it in the New Testament. And that really is the main intent 
of Jesus' teaching in this particular scripture on the subject of fasting. So they were worshiping God wrongly in relation to self. They were wrong about others, they were wrong about God, and they're wrong about self. Well, I want to move on now and get into a question that I think it's natural for us to ask. What do we do about fasting today? Should we or shouldn't we fast? Are we commanded to do this? So thirdly, we're going to look at the present-day place of fasting. Now, there is no doubt that fasting was practiced in New Testament, by New Testament Christians. And when Jesus taught on the subject uh, here, we see he doesn't rebuke them for the practice of fasting. He's just speaking about the misuse of it. And so we find examples of fasting sprinkled throughout the New Testament, and the apostles did practice it. But there's a very peculiar thing about this, and that, that it's when you compare it to the other two types of worship that we've been discussing. Now, we take the other two for, for just a minute and look at those. What about giving? Well, we find numerous passages in the New Testament about giving. Uh, we can find a development of a plan for giving, and the purpose of giving, the place of giving, and the punctuality of giving, the people who need to give, the proportion that we ought to give. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. That's a good chapter to read about, to learn about giving. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is another good place. Philippians chapter 4. Those are good places to learn about giving. And so there's much detail about that particular type of worship in the New Testament. And, of course, the same is true of prayer. And we all know that. There's much said in Scripture about prayer. Now, the Bible has more to say about prayer than it does the other two areas of worship. Of these three examples, more is said about prayer because it stand, and it stands out the most. And here in this scripture, Jesus, in verses 1 through 18, he gives specific teaching on prayer that's more detailed than either giving or fasting. So we look into the Word of God and we can find plenty of, that's said about uh, our prayer life because that's our relation to deity and that's how we communicate God, with God. We speak with him and we approach him through prayer. And that's why we're not going to skip over it. Now, as we were studying this, we skipped over the, one of these parts here that deals with the Lord's Prayer because we were trying to hold the whole theme together of these three worship sinners giving, uh, praying, and fasting. So we're going to go back next week, and we're going to do a detailed study of the Lord's Prayer and learn what Jesus has to say about that. But when it comes to fasting, we don't find very much about this in the Bible. There's no direct teaching about it in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't expand upon it in this particular scripture. There's no word from anyone anywhere in the New Testament that says that God's people have to fast, that there's a command to do it. Now, Jesus is speaking about the misuse simply because it represents an example of personal devotion. And personal devotion must be right if we're going to worship God rightly. Now, I'm not saying that fasting is useless and it's not something that should be practiced today. In fact, I mean, just the very fact that uh, New Testament Christians practice it does tell us something. But if we think that fasting is going to make us closer to God, and if we think that we're going to get something out of God or we're going to force God's hand because we fast, then we're wrong in the practice. And we're also wrong if we think that fasting... Uh, applies to things like doing it for financial reasons. Uh, that's not what the Bible is speaking about when it talks about fasting. 
Sometimes a preacher will stand up in a pulpit and he'll say, well, we're going to have a fast. And what we need to do is we need to raise some money. And so what you need to do, you need to skip a few trips to McDonald's and we're going to take the money that you would have spent on that and then we're going to bring it to the church and we're all going to fast at this particular time and we're going to raise some money because we have a goal to reach. That's not what the Bible speaks of when it talks about fasting. Now, if that's your ingenious method of raising money, that's okay. It's fine with me. And the Bible doesn't necessarily speak against that. But that's not what real fasting is all about according to the Scripture. So what is biblical fasting? What is the right New Testament practice concerning this? Well, I want to give you three ways today that this can be applied. Three ways that I think that fasting can be applied. The first one is in times of spiritual depression. And I would call that a natural time of fasting. And I'm not speaking here about depression in the sense of clinical depression. And I'm not saying that it's all right for a Christian to be depressed about circumstances and for you to be anxious and worried about things. That kind of depression is wrong. That is unbiblical. It grows out of a lack of faith. Doubt and worry and depression in that way are lack of dependence upon God. And neither then should we be depressed about or mourn about our sin. I mean, our sins have been forgiven in Christ. All of our sins have been taken care of in him. And so we don't sorrow over sin in the same way they did in Old Testament times. Then they had the Day of Atonement. And they had to do that every single year. But now that Christ has come, Christ has forever forgiven us of our sins. And so we wouldn't mourn for it in the same way that they did in Old Testament times. But there are times when there are certain types of depression, if that's what you want to call it. And this is a deep spiritual burden that you have. And it may be that you're laboring with God over some issue. Naturally, you would be praying about it. You would be in communication with God about it. And in those kinds of times, you might naturally fast. You, you don't have a mind to think about food. And so you're really concerned about this deep spiritual issue that you have with God. And you're laboring with God over that. Uh, an example would be when I remember when my father was, was close to his last days on the earth and he was in the hospital and I went to visit him and we were praying about him and praying about his condition and we were sorrowful about that and, and uh, we just naturally fasted. Not that we were trying to declare something, but we did that because we just weren't interested in food. And so often the Bible talks about how that uh, physical emotions affect us in the area of our stomach. And that's why the Bible talks about emotional things coming from your bowels. Paul used that in Colossians 3, verse number 12. He said, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. And he used the term bowels because emotionally this is where we feel it, down in the area of the stomach. And so this kind of fasting would be natural. And you may make a conscious decision that you want to continue to fast when you're laboring over something like this. So I'm not talking about depression because of lack of faith. I'm speaking of times when, you're, when your brow is furrowed and you're very deeply concerned about something, and then you decide that you want to fast. Well, it should be obvious that that kind of fasting is very personal. And that's sort of the key to all the three areas that I want to talk about. It's very personal. Nobody can tell you that you have to do it, and the Bible hasn't commanded that you do it. 
And so you wouldn't go telling everybody, well, guess what? I'm fasting. I mean, I have this deep spiritual thing that I'm dealing with, and I need to fast about that. Well, you wouldn't do that because that's between you and God. It wouldn't make any sense to tell anybody else that you're fasting. Well, secondly, there are times of spiritual direction, and that is the most often use of fasting that we find in the New Testament. Now, Old Testament days, uh, fasting was used on a national day of repentance and mourning for sin, but the apostles didn't do it for that purpose. There, there wasn't any need for that purpose. But they would fast many times when they were seeking some spiritual direction in their lives. And we have an example of this in Acts chapter 13. Uh, this was right before Paul's first missionary journey. And in Acts 13, it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and then sent them away. So there is an example where men of God met together, they prayed very carefully, and they considered what God would have them to do. And so they fasted while they were waiting on God to give them their answer. And so out of that prayer and out of fasting, there was word that came from the Holy Spirit that Paul and Barnabas were to be separated to the ministry, and they were to be sent as missionaries. And then there are a couple of other times where we find Paul uh, speaking about fasting, And the context of those times also indicate that it has to do with personal devotion and seeking God's will. And I suppose the remarkable thing about all of that is that there are some references to it in the New Testament, but we don't find it commanded, and we don't find any detailed detailed instructions about how we are to do it. And so if that's your method of finding God's will, and you're looking for an answer to something, and you decide that you want to fast, that's okay. And if you're sincere about it, nobody else needs to know about it. It's between you and God, and certainly that would be okay. Now, the third reason about fasting is the one that I want to spend a little bit more time with because this is where we really do need some correction about modern-day practices. And these are times of personal conviction. Now, I think that there are many of us that have pulled back on the idea of fasting because we don't want to be associated with in any way, with those who have definitely used unbiblical practices in their fasting. Now, in the beginning of the message, I told you that we worship differently than Roman Catholics because our theology concerning how that a man is just with God is different from theirs. And theology translates into your practice. Many of you are familiar with the Roman Catholic practice of of celebrating Lent. And there's a huge Catholic influence in in this area, and so most of you are probably familiar with this. But I'm from Kentucky, and when I grew up, I grew up among most people who were Baptist, and so I really wasn't connected with this and didn't know very much about it. I mean, to me, Lent was something that you found in your pockets when you got your pants out of the dryer, and Lent was something you found in your belly button if you have an any instead of an Audi. So I wasn't really familiar with all of this. I mean, I didn't know much about fasting, so, um, and about Lent. So one day after I become pastor here, I went down to the hospital in Petaluma to visit one of our church members there. And um, 
it was Ash Wednesday on that particular day, and as I said, I didn't know very much about it. But that, cat, that hospital has Catholic uh, associations, and so I went into the hospital, and I noticed that the nurses, a lot of the nurses had these black spots on their foreheads. And I, well, what's that all about? I, I thought maybe their personal hygiene wasn't so good. They didn't wash their face before they came to work. But really, you know what that is? That was just an outgrowth of that old pharisaical practice of having that ash spread on your face or showing a dirty face to show people that you're in the season of Lent and that you believe in uh, in fasting, that you appear to be fasting, and you're celebrating that particular time of Lent. Well, what do they do at Lent? Well, again, Lent is a is a time of fasting, and it's a time to give up things as a as an act of piety before Easter. Uh, fasting is observed in Lent, and so people will decide to give up something, and and uh, that proves uh, how pious that they are concerning uh, Easter and that particular uh, type of worship. And so people put those ashes on their foreheads, and some of them will give up uh, the ultimate. I mean, they'll really make sacrifices. Some will give up potato chips, and they'll give up candy bars or Fruit Loops or something like that. And so they make that ultimate sacrifice to, to fast at the time of Lent. And then just to show you how far off base that this can become when you get the practice of worship wrong, uh, we all know, I think, what happens in New Orleans just before Lent, don't we? That's Mardi Gras. Fat Tuesday. And on Fat Tuesday, what do they do? Well, that's a time of drunkenness and debauchery. It's a time of lewdness and all kinds of wickedness. And what they do is right before Ash Wednesday at the beginning of Lent, they get their fill of sin. I mean, they do as much as they can because they know that very soon they're going to have to give up things for God. And so they fill up their lives with sin. So what's the idea? Well, I can sin as much as I want on Tuesday because I'm going to make up for it on Wednesday. And I'm going to make up for it through the season of Lent. And so they had this huge celebration of Mardi Gras where all of this stuff goes on. And then at 12 a.m. on Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, they roll up the streets and they drive everybody out because now it's time to go into Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent. And so the idea then is you can get your fill of sin on Tuesday And however much that you sin, you're going to make up for it on Wednesday and throughout the rest of the week of Lent. So I guess what they're trying to say is your bad deeds are going to outweigh, or your your bad deeds will be canceled out, I should say, by your good deeds, and all of it comes out in the wash. And maybe that's why they call it Lent. So you see what happens here when you get all of this wrong? When you get it wrong, when you get theology wrong, when you get the answer to this question, how shall a man be just with God, and you have a good work salvation, and you have a a, a system like Phariseeism or Catholicism, then that all builds up into the wrong kind of worship. And so your personal devotion ends up seesawing between good and bad deeds and between acts of piety, and all of it becomes totally meaningless. And so... We back off from fasting because we don't want to be associated with that, and we see all of the abuse that comes from it. But there are also some really good churches that are totally wrong about fasting. Now, I know that I know of some good Baptist churches that will declare a fast. And the pastor says, well, we want everybody to fast this week. Uh, we're going to entreat God for something, and so we have this special project or whatever it might be that's going on, and so we will declare a fast. 
I've received letters from missionaries that tell me that they've been fasting for so many days and, and they're, they have a, a special need and they're asking God to answer their need and so they write a letter to me and they make sure that I know that they've been fasting. That is a misuse of fasting and that is unbiblical. You can't tell people that you're going to fast. You can't tell them that you're in the middle of a fast. Now, you can proclaim a fast because you want to do it and, and uh, you have some kind of devotion that you want to give to God between you and him alone, but to declare it openly and say that we're all fasting is exactly the opposite of what Jesus says we're to do. Now, if you're going to fast according to Jesus, you don't let anybody know that you're fasting. If you do it, you don't tell anybody. And much less would you ever say, well, we're going to fast in order to get God to do something. Because God doesn't respond to fasting in that way. And God doesn't want you to involve yourself in some kind of a ritual where you're trying to wrench something out of him. So what I'm trying to point out is that fasting is a very deeply personal thing. There is no command in the New Testament to fast. There is no longer any such thing as corporate fasting. There is no such thing biblically as church-wide fasting. And there is no such thing as Pavlovian response fasting, where you ring the bell and God answers whatever need that you have. So you're not going to have me or hear me announce to Brian Baptist Church that we're going to have a fast. Fasting is something that's personal. It's something dictated by your personal conscience. And so if your personal conscience tells you that you need to fast, and that's between you and God alone, and that's your personal dedication to God alone, and you want to do it for that reason, that's fine. But if you feel like you have to tell somebody about it, and you want them to see how holy that you are, how close to God that you are, so people can applaud you, and you do it because you want to get something out of God, then think about what you're doing, and then run away as fast as you can from that kind of a ritual. God does not honor devotion in our worship when it's offered wrongly. And so if the premise is wrong, then the practice is also going to be wrong. Now let me sum it up with just a few thoughts. Jesus is not teaching that you must fast. He's teaching here a principle of personal devotion. How you worship God is a matter of your heart. It doesn't have anything to do with the way that people view you. It's not for their benefit. Worship goes to God. Now, the only time that you involve other people in this is if you're trying to give somebody help or if you're entreating God in prayer for someone else, then you may want to involve that person. But if you pray and you give and you fast or you do any acts of personal devotion because you're trying to prove a point about your holiness and because you want to be applauded and taken notice of, then you're fasting for the wrong reasons. And that is not biblical. Now, Jesus could have applied it to any number of areas. He could have used other examples. Fasting is the one he used here concerning food. But fasting carries with it a principle. You may decide that you're going to give up something like TV. Maybe you're going to give up football games and recreation or give up Mary Kay cosmetics, and you do that to be a good Christian. Well, if you do, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Not, no offense to you, Julie, back there. <laughs> But uh, if you're doing it for a season of Lent or to practice something like that and you think that, well, this really makes me holy because I've done something that's uncommon that other people won't do and so that means I'm so close to God, then you have really made a mistake in acts of personal devotion. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach here. So you don't fast in order to get somewhere. You fast because you've already been somewhere. 
God has done something marvelous in your heart, a work in your heart, and you respond to that by fasting and personal devotion. And if that's the way that you show it for that reason, then your heavenly Father, which sees what's secretly in your heart, will reward you for it. Now, I think that we need to look at Scripture closely. And we see there is no command to fast. There is no set time for fasting. There are no directions given for it, like giving and praying. And so I think that we can say then, fasting is totally spontaneous. It rises out of a heart of personal devotion, and it depends upon the circumstances at the time. How shall a man be just with God? And if you answer that question correctly, that man is just with God, not because of anything that he has done, but because of what Christ has done for him, then that will lead you into acts of devotion that glorify God always and will never glorify you. And that's what Jesus is teaching throughout this whole section, verses 1 through 18. Everything that we do for God, whether it's our giving, whether it's our praying, whether it's our acts of devotion, all of our worship is to be done for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've been able to spend together. And we have an unusual subject before us today. And sometimes it's difficult to make something out of this that's helpful to people. But we want to get this very important point across to anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that there is nothing that a person can do to ever be righteous in the eyes of God. We must depend totally upon the Lord Jesus Christ for our righteousness that you give righteousness to us through our faith in you. We can't earn this on our own. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior today, that you'd speak to their heart and cause them to give up on self and to look completely and totally to you for their salvation. And then for Christians here today that are wondering about uh, personal holiness, I pray, Lord, that you would convict their hearts. And, Lord, I also pray that we may never do anything that will cause us to stand out in front of others and draw attention to ourselves and that we would say we are so holy because of something that we do, but rather every act of our lives might be done totally, completely to honor and glorify your name because you deserve all the glory and the praise. Bless us now, Lord, in the time that we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.